0: Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to, uh, excuse me, not, not Philippians, Philadelphia is our church, Revelation 3. Second to last church in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ of the seven churches. We'll teach on Philadelphia this week, Laodicea next week. The week after that we're going to have sort of a summary message where we're going to ask some questions about whether or not these chapters are only contemporary or if they are indeed prophetic. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Talk about the nature of local church. And then after that, it'll be the rapture. And then things are going to really pick up the pace quite quickly as we talk about all the elements of of the end times. And we'll be going to a lot of Old Testament passages, putting a lot of things together. Um, So it's going to... It's going to get exciting here. Uh, but for this week, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the church of Philadelphia. Uh, in, in it, we see a church very similar in character to that of Smyrna. We had talked about how Sardis was very similar to Ephesus. That, uh, Ephesus was a church that was doing the works but had lost its first love, and Smyrna was a church that was dead while living, right? Uh, um, not Smyrna, excuse me, Sardis. Um, and so we had this, this correlation sort of between Sardis and Ephesus. We also see a, a, a general correlation, we might say, between Smyrna, that second church, which was very faithful to the Lord through deep persecution, and then this church of Philadelphia, who was very faithful to the Lord, though not in persecution. It was a church that contended with the false Jews of the synagogue of Satan. It was a church that was being faithful, that was being obedient. But, but unlike the persecuted church of Smyrna in Philadelphia, the Bible says God opened to them a door and no man could shut it. They, they, was, they, they were in a, a place in their ministry, a place in the church, a, a place in God's plan where God had opened a door that, that no man could resist. No man could shut it. They were granted victory. They were granted effectiveness. And this is truly, uh, of all the churches, the church that maybe, maybe selfishly in part we would desire, also spiritually we would certainly desire. We always want to be ready to be like a Smyrna, a church that's faithful through the hard times. We always want to kind of be a church like Philadelphia, a church where we're being faithful as God is just opening the doors, as He's pouring out the spiritual blessings, as we, we are... Uh, uh, um, Moving through the community almost irresistibly. People are getting saved. Things are happening. That was the church of Philadelphia. We begin in verse 7. The Bible says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. We are talking about the church of Philadelphia this week. Philadelphia uh, is it, the meaning in the Greek, means the city of brotherly love, sat alongside a river, and it was backed by volcanic cliffs. There's a fault line right around that area, volcanic activity and such. We've spoken already about the realities of that area, being that there were a lot of earthquakes. We know that there was an earthquake in 17 AD. There was another earthquake in 61 AD. Uh, in 17 AD, it leveled several of the cities. Uh, in 61 AD, leveled several other of these cities. We're writing after both of those earthquakes. Uh, the, the city in Turkey is now called al Sahir. Philadelphia was very vulnerable because of this volcanic activity and where they sat kind of right at the base of these volcanic cliffs. The soil, however, was very rich there because of this. Very rich in minerals, very fertile. Philadelphia was a border town founded with a particular intention. And the particular intention, and remember we've talked every week about how God most certainly chose these churches with, their, with, with the elements of history in mind, right? Right? So we talked last week about Sardis and how uh, Sardis was a city that was uh, naturally very well fortified. And so the only way that it would really be able to be overcome would be through apathy. And the church was a church of apathy. That though the power of the Spirit of God is alive in the believers, they were dead. And deadness and the Spirit of God don't go together unless you're quenching and grieving the Spirit, unless you're walking in apathy, unless you're not really paying attention. And Sardis was a church like that, and Sardis was actually a city like that as well. And we've seen that throughout. We've seen that in several of the churches. We're going to see it again this week. We're going to see it very, very particularly next week. And so as we, we recognize these cultural and historical significance uh, elements, we understand that that within the, the span of the various cities, Philadelphia was a border town that was founded with this specific intention in mind that Greek culture would be heavily based there and then could, could be spread through Asia with Philadelphia kind of being the head or the baseline of Greek culture in the region. Philadelphia, thus, was uniquely positioned as a city for outreach. It was uniquely positioned as a city to become a, a base of operations through which they would send. And we actually see this characteristic boil over into God's teaching of the church of Philadelphia, that they were a church that had an open door, that they were a church where God was going to open the door, no man could shut it, no man could resist, and they were going to be able to walk through that door and reach out and be effective in ministry. Now, as and we'll see that as we continue. As, as God introduces Himself here, as Jesus introduces Himself, we find the introduction that He is holy. These, sayeth, these things saith He that is holy. Holy meaning set apart. Holy meaning uh, uh, um, that which is, is unlike the profane. Uh, God is set apart from us. There is none like Him. He resides in perfection. He is the exact opposite of the flaws of mankind rooted in our sinfulness. He is true. That God does not just speak truth, but the essence of who he is, is truth. God is true. If it is God, it is true. If it is true, then it relates itself to God. And then we see this third characteristic. Says, he that hath the key of David. And then he goes on to say, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. As we consider these ideas of holiness, of truth, we see the echoes of Old Testament characteristics of God in Exodus chapter 3, when He spoke to Moses, and He said to Moses at the burning bush, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Or of Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord at his commission, and the seraphim around the throne cry one to another in Isaiah 6:3: "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of, or is the Lord of hosts. Excuse me. The whole earth is full of His glory." Indeed, the phrase "The Holy One of Israel" is in reference to Jehovah used 31 times in our Old Testament. He is holy. He is also true. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Jesus' words here reflect a character trait which God assumes upon Himself. He declared it <clears throat> in His name <clears throat> when Moses was on the mountain. And Moses asked the Lord to show His glory. And as God passed by Moses... God declared this in Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He is holy. The very fundamental aspect, characteristic of God, is that he is set apart. It's not just something he has chosen to be, it's something that he is. He is true. The very characteristic, the essence of the character of God is that He is truth. It's not just something that He says. It's not just something that He chooses. It is the very essence of His being. Third, this idea that He hath the key of David. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts, no man opens. Throughout the old, uh, through introduction, I, I've been connecting the words of Jesus in Philadelphia to the Old Testament. And we see that this is something that... The Church of Philadelphia can somewhat claim as a characteristic. We see a very Jewish flavor. We see a very um, uh, Old Testament feel to the entirety of the message to the Church of Philadelphia. Uh, Likely a very strong Jewish contingency there. Uh, They dealt with the synagogue of Satan, the, the Jews who had rejected Messiah. And we see this particular element of the introduction of who Jesus is to them. And it's very deeply rooted in an Old Testament story, in an Old Testament narrative. He holds the key of David. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man man opens. And to understand this reference, we actually end up in Isaiah chapter 22. There's a man named Shebna and another man named Eliakim. These men were officers in the court of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Hezekiah was a good king. He was a godly king. And we see them in the Old Testament finding that Hilkiah was the governor of the household. uh, Not Hilkiah, excuse me. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. He was the governor of the household. And then Shebna was the scribe. That's what we see in 2 Kings 18.18. The Bible says this. And when they had called to the king, there came out... To them, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So In 2 Kings 18.18, we find that Eliakim is over the household. This would be very similar to uh, the position that we find Joseph in, in Egypt, the second in command, the one who was in charge of the household, a great amount of authority, Uh, practically all of the authority in the land uh, by delegation, by representation, right? Uh, This is kind of like my wife at home. Uh, I go to work and I say, "Mm -hmm." have a good day, and, and I leave, and, and my wife is is the second in command, and, and she is in charge of the household, right? She's in charge of everything that goes on, and I get home, and I say, how did it go? And my wife tells me what happened, and, and if I need to uh, um, uh, clean up some things, I clean up some things as far as uh, behavior and whatnot, and then I um, say, okay, and I go off and mow the lawn or something, and my wife is still dealing with a lot of household things, right? Because she's She is been given this delegated position of authority, and she is thus dealing with children. She's dealing with the house. She's dealing with these things. The idea of the one who is over the household was that uh, a, a heavy position of authority. But what we find in Scripture is that when Isaiah was writing in Isaiah 22 about these two men, Eliakim and Shebna, the roles were somewhat reversed. Shebna was actually in the position of the head of the household. He was in the second in command and Eliakim was not. To this end, Isaiah 22 speaks of a time prior to the passage of 2 Kings 18 when Shebna was governor and we see this beginning in Isaiah 22, verse 12. Excuse me, verse 15. The Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasurer, treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here? That thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that gaveth an habitation for himself in a rock. Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die. And there the chariots of, the, of thy glory shall be the shame of the, thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he put thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father unto the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. The offspring and the issue, all all vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons, in that day saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in a sure place be removed, and be cut down, and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. We find here an instance where Shebna had been an unjust steward of the house of David, that in the days of Hil- uh, of, of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had given to Shevna, who is the treasurer, as well as head over the household, a great amount of power. And he had misused that power. And he had forsaken that power. And he had used that power improperly. And so the Bible says, God says that he would take Shevna and he would send him off into captivity. And he would take him into a far land. And he would lose his power and he would become a shame in that sense. And then that he would give. Hilkiah, excuse me, Eliakim, I keep saying Hilkiah, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that power. And Eliakim would then get the authority and Eliakim would have that privilege. And within that promise to Eliakim is this phrase that he would lay upon his shoulders the key to the house of David, that he would open and no man would shut, and he would shut and no man would open. And the idea here in Isaiah 22, what is being said is that Eliakim would receive all authority, that he would be honored for his faithfulness with the privilege of authority, and that what he says goes. Remember, uh, we, we, can, we can think back to that idea of Joseph. Joseph was made second in command in Egypt and the Pharaoh didn't know what he had save, save uh, uh, um, well, I guess that was Potiphar, right? But, but the, the, he was made second in command in Egypt and what he said goes. That was the idea as given to Eliakim. Now carry this idea carry this Isaiah 22 concept, the key to the house of David, that under Eliakim's hand was all of the authority of the house of David. The authority of God is given to the house of David to rule. And we carry it over into into verse 7. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. So what Eliakim represented typologically in the Old Testament, this idea that Eliakim had the authority of the house of David, uh, finds its, its fullness in Jesus Christ. That as Jesus was faithful, that as Jesus was true, that as Jesus was holy, as Jesus went and, and did as his father had asked him to do, and so was exalted, thus God has given him all authority. Authority over the house of David, And in this particular case, a reminder, specifically in regard to the house of David, and we'll see why this matters in just a moment, or why it could matter, it's a theory, uh, specifically to reach out to the hearts of God's people, the nation of Israel. So we know that Jesus is exalted, and we know that he's been exalted by virtue of his atoning death. We read about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ obeyed the will of the Father even unto death, and now the Father has highly exalted him, has given him not just the keys of the kingdom, but as we see in Revelation 3, 7, the keys to the house of David. To this end, it is Jesus that has authority. Whom Jesus, when Jesus opens the door, the door stays open. When Jesus closes the door, the door cannot be opened. When the door is open, no man can shut it. When the door is closed, no man can open it. Jesus Christ is sovereign over the kingdom of God. To this end, he says in verse 8 to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Jesus tells them, as he's told every church, I know thy works. He's going to get to their works in just a moment, but first he's going to focus in on his works. He says, I've set before thee an open door. He has the key, and he's opened the door. And no man can shut it, just as he has the authority to do. We'll see what this likely means in the next verse. What we know, however, is that it's an opportunity which Christ has given to this church and against whom nothing can resist. That, that as this door is open, that no man can shut it. And why is it that this door has been opened for them? What is it that caused Christ to desire to open this door? Well, we see that in the second half. This is verse 4. That word in the Greek, actually because. Because, Jesus says, you have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. The idea here is that the church has recognized its own weakness and in their humility and incapacity, Christ is able to do a great work through them. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, when I am weak, then am I strong. Recognizing that the power of Christ is magnified most clearly in the lives of those who are Acknowledge their own weakness. And so God says, you have, thou hast a little strength. But in that humility and incapacity, they've kept the Lord's word. They've not denied his name. Our Lord seeks for vessels of weakness through whom he can work. Seeks for the humble and lowly that he may use them, that he may receive all the glory. The glory goes to him alone. Verse 9, then, he says this Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. We find our second reference within the scope of these seven churches to the synagogue of Satan. Last time, we described them as unbelieving Jews those who held to the doctrines of Orthodox Judaism in opposition to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that Satan had thus used these who claimed to their loyalty to the Old Testament but who had twisted and perverted it and confused it. And so now we're claiming loyalty to the Old Testament in opposition to Jesus Christ who is the very Word of God. And we, we um, pinpointed that as this idea of the synagogue of Satan those that say they are Jews and are not, but do lie, as we spoke of last time. These who claim to be followers of the law of Moses, but who have rejected the Messiah that the law taught. Jesus says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. And in Philadelphia, we find that while the synagogue of Satan was operating, God was going to give the church a victory over them, an open door, he says in verse eight. And it would seem that this open door relates directly to the synagogue of Satan, directly to the Jews. And we put a few things together to get to this assumption. Number one, remember that as he talks about this open door, which no man can shut, it was within this specific context of him having the key of David which references the house of David in Isaiah 22. And so we see a very Jewish flavor to this. And then we see this promise that he's given them an open door because they've not denied his name, though the synagogue of Satan would seek to persecute them as we know that they were deeply persecuting the church of Smyrna. Yet they have not denied his name, yet they have kept his works. And then we find here in verse 9, that he says that he will make them, that would be the synagogue of Satan, them that say they are Jews and are not, but do lie, them that say that they are uh, walking as followers of Abraham, but they have rejected the faith of Abraham. And he says that he will cause them to worship at their feet and to know that Jesus has loved them. There's not a consensus as to what this means. The two primary theories are first that simply the synagogue of Satan will be effectively broken and will have to come to, to uh, um, they will stop even attempting to persecute the church because of the church's effectiveness in the area. The other idea, and I believe this one is, is more likely because of the idea of open door that's related to this, is that. This means that those that say they are Jews and are not but do lie, those of the synagogue of Satan, will acknowledge the truth of the gospel and will come to submit themselves to the teachings of the gospel uh, in regard to God through Christ. That many would acknowledge that the God of the Old Testament is Christ who loves his church. And so they will acknowledge that God loves the church of Philadelphia. There's some debate about that, but I think that that is the best way to take all of the different elements of this and put it together. In other words, God says, I'm going to open a door and you are going to become effective evangelists among the Jewish people in your area. And you're going to have success. And I'm going to give you that success. Verse 10. We see another because. Because, he says, thou hast kept the word of my patience I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Remember our general outline to these churches. The first thing that we do is we see uh, God address the church, the angel of the church. Then we see him introduce himself in some unique way that relates to the church. And then he tells them that he knows their works and some element of their works, and how they're working. And then he gives them a promise or a, or a rebuke. In this case, Philadelphia does not have a rebuke. And the, the, prom, the, the rebuke gives way to the promise for those that repent, or in this case, it's just a direct promise. And the promise to the church is this. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. We see a few words here. We see a distinct cause and effect relationship here. The word of his patience, because they have kept the word of his patience. That's the cause. The effect is that he will keep them from the hour of temptation. Now we know what the hour of temptation is as we read it here. The hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. This is the 70th week of Daniel. This is that time when God is going to pour out his judgments upon the earth and he is going to try the earth and they are going to confirm themselves in their wickedness and God is going to do that. That is no question here. The hour of temptation as it's being spoken. So the question then becomes, what is the word of his patience? What is it that is going to keep them from the hour of temptation? What is it that is going to guard them from this adversity that will come upon the earth? And if we can figure that out, though there's room for debate about it, then we're going to understand uh, some important aspects even of end times um, import. Well, notice it says here that it doesn't uh, that, that it says the word of my patience, because thou has kept the word of my patience. It doesn't say the word of thy patience or the word of our patience or the word of your patience. It says the word of my patience. And we know who's writing here, right? It's Jesus Christ. So this is the word of his steadfastness, the word of his endurance. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the word of Jesus's endurance? What is the word of Jesus's steadfastness? If we can understand this, then we can understand what's being said here. Well, as I mentioned, there's certainly room to debate. But if we think about it, boil it down, the very essence of Jesus's faithfulness, steadfastness, and constancy toward us is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it Not? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24 tells us this. Who did no sin, speaking of Jesus, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus bore revulsion with patience. Jesus bore our wrath, the the Lord's wrath against our sin, with patience, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The very essence of Christ's faithfulness to us is rooted in the sacrifice that He endured on the cross. To keep that Word then, if that is the Word of Christ's patience, if that is the message of Christ's patience, of Christ's endurance, of Christ's faithfulness, if Christ's faithfulness is that He died on the cross, that He he was buried, that He rose again the third day, that He lives today, that He's coming back for His own, that He keeps His loved ones in grace, then to keep the Word of His patience is to obey the Gospel. And the Gospel tells us these things about Christ, about what he did for us, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if that is the case, then the meaning becomes clear. That God says, because you have kept the gospel, because you have obeyed the gospel, because you have regarded the gospel, because you have acknowledged Christ, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. That is to come. As we consider our theology when it relates to the rapture, that we believe that God will remove the church prior to the 70th week of Daniel. It is things like this. These don't prove, but it's things like this that help us wrap our minds around this promise. That to those who have acknowledged the gospel of Jesus Christ, to those who have assimilated the gospel of Jesus Christ, to those who have truly believed, there is a promise of safekeeping. Verse 11. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. They're told to guard to attend unto their profession of the gospel, trusting that in doing so they'll be kept in, safe, kept in grace. Then they are told in a much more active way here in this second verse to master the method that they have attained, to maintain the distinctives of the faithfulness. So in the last verse, it was. An idea of of carefully guarding their acknowledgement of the gospel and that would uh, keep them from the hour of temptation. In this verse, it is a holding fast, a gaining possession of, a mastering of that which thou hast, of keeping his word, of maintaining faithfulness. And in doing so, they will receive a crown. They will receive the rewards that are to come. A believer's safekeeping in grace will guard him from the hour of temptation upon the world. But the believer's rewards, the crowns on the day of judgment, these must be earned through faithfulness, vigilance, determination, obedience. And so the warning is to hold fast. Because they are Christ's, they will be kept from the hour of temptation. Because they have kept the word of his patience, his patience, right? That's his work. That's his work. They believed His work, they'll be kept from the hour of temptation. If they hold fast to their works, they'll receive a crown. You see the distinction between the two. One is all about what Christ has done. The other is about what we do. What Christ has done brings us to a place of salvation by grace through faith. But there are rewards to be won. And they have to be earned. And they're earned through faithfulness. And the warning is that they hold fast to these things. They hold fast to the methods, to the manner, to not denying the Lord. That they would not allow something, some man on this earth to take away their crown, to take away their rewards by following after that which does not profit. I hope we see that distinction clearly. The word of Christ's patience versus holding fast what they have. So they are told to guard, to attend upon their profession of the gospel and then to trust the Lord. And then they're told to master their own works so that they can receive a crown. Verse 12, we see the promise to the overcomer. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. As we said throughout, the promise to the overcomer is a broader promise to all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I had a couple of people come up last week and ask questions about this in relation to the church of Sardis. As uh, we read there in verse he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Remember that these promises to the overcomer are not attached to the efforts of any individual church. They are not attached to the efforts of any individual church. In First John 5, we see that the thing that overcomes the world is our faith. We talked about that in the first week in the church of Ephesus. The promise to the overcomers is a hopeful promise. It's not a threat. It's not God saying, you have to persevere, and if you don't persevere, then you will lose these things. It is saying, because you have overcome, you have already gained these things. So he's rebuking churches, right? And they leave these rebukes quite discouraged. But then God ends each rebuke with a reminder. If you are an overcomer, then you still have these things to look forward to, but you might lose your rewards if you don't repent, if you don't get right, if you don't get things figured out. And that's the idea here with these overcomers. Don't read the he, him that overcometh stuff as, as, as the threats of God that he is going to strip from those blessings if they don't persevere because that is not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying, you who are already overcomers, this is for you. And because we have these hopeful promises, every man that hath this hope in himself purifies himself. The Bible says... And so because we have received the hope of God, because we are overcomers, because Romans chapter 8, we are already more than conquerors through him who loved us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, get busy for him. Repent and do the first works. And this is, remember, this is that promise. And notice that the promise to the overcomers in this instance is still uh, very Old Testament flavored. He says, He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The temple kind of reminds me of Psalm 84, verses 10 and 11, where David writes, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. David says, I'd rather hold the door in the the temple of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. God, Jesus says to those that overcome, I'm going to make you a, a pillar in the temple of God. You, don't, you, you never have to leave again. doesn't mean you're going to be holding up a wall. What it means is that you will be there. You will, you will be in the Lord's presence perpetually because the Lord is there. Can't wait till we get to the end of Revelation to, to, and we'll read about that. The Lord is there. In his presence, we will dwell. So we'll be made a a pillar in the temple of God. We'll go no more out. We'll have his name written upon us and the name of his city written upon us. It will be our city, the new Jerusalem. It will be our God. We sang this morning, I am his and he is mine. We are his. It's a wonderful thought. It's a wonderful thought that he is ours fellowship. And right now on this earth, our feet of clay, we come in and out of fellowship through sin. We have days of weariness. We're busy. We're tired. We're sick. Our emotions, they go up and down. Things happen. There's coming a day where fellowship will be perpetual where we will bear the name of our God and the name of, our city, of the city of our God and we will go no more out. But we will be with him and he will be with us in this new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. We'll talk about that when we get there. We'll have his new name, a new name which no man knows. If we have ears, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is our hope. This is what we have to look forward to. And because we are that, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are an overcomer. And if you are an overcomer, you have these things to look forward to. But in the meantime, there's work to be done. And this is what prophecy is about. This is what prophecy is for. It's to remind us of what we have to do right now. Three applications this morning. As we close, point number one, let's talk about open and closed doors. There's a conflict in my heart when I read of the Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia is everything that I would desire our church to be humble, faithful, uh, recognizing our own weakness so that the Lord can be strong in us, and having open doors that we might be able to reach the community that we might be able to see our young people grow up to love the Lord with all of their hearts and souls and might that they might become the next generation of the church and a strong foundation at that but there's always a little bit of a conflict in my heart because I, I I think of poor Smyrna Smyrna also contended with the synagogue of Satan didn't they? If we go back to chapter two, we read in verse eight, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And God says, fear none of these things that the devil would cast them into prison they may be tried that they'd have tribulation ten days be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life the synagogue of Satan in the church of Smyrna was devastating them, killing them, imprisoning them, God says I know it God says there's going to be a time of suffering but be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life Just 105 miles away from Smyrna was the city of Philadelphia. This church also had the synagogue of Satan contended with it. But Jesus told them that he had given them an open door that no man could shut in victory over this synagogue so that they would come and worship before their feet and acknowledge that Christ loves them. And as we consider such differences, we might be tempted to feel as though there's some injustice here. How is it that God can look at Smyrna and say, suffer through it? And look at Philadelphia, 105 miles away and say, I'm going to give you an open door. Say to the church of Smyrna, the the synagogue of Satan is going to prevail against you for a time, but but they'll get theirs. And say to Philadelphia, I'm going to open a door and give you victory over them. Both churches were faithful. Those are the two churches that face no rebuke. So why the difference? I'm going to give you an answer that is less than satisfactory, perhaps, but an answer nonetheless. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says this, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form save to him that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? These verses are written by Paul in the context of God's election. Choosing certain men to fulfill his purposes while rejecting other men in those purposes has nothing to do with salvation, by the way. Nothing. Romans 9 10 11 is not about salvation, it's about election. And election is not about salvation. Election is about purpose. God says he'll have mercy on certain while choosing not to have mercy on others. And these verses remind us that God has every right to choose for each of us what he will and that we have no right to question it. When we see Smyrna in Philadelphia, we see two churches that were loved by God two churches, neither one had been rejected by God, neither one had been set aside, as we kind of observe in in the picture of Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. In this case, we see two churches that were faithful, two churches that were commended, two churches that were accomplishing the will of God, both churches overcoming. To this end, as believers, when we see a disparity of circumstances, where we see two men or two families or two churches following Christ and one is abounding physically and spiritually while the other is suffering physically while abounding spiritually. It's incumbent upon us to remember that circumstances are not a reflection of God's favor or disfavor. They're simply a reflection of God's pleasure, God's will, God's design. Why is it? That God allowed Smyrna to go to be under the persecution while opening this door to Philadelphia. We don't know. Well, Philadelphia must have been more faithful. Really? I don't see anything in the church of Smyrna that would lend itself to the idea that they weren't doing right. I don't see anything that would lend itself to the idea that they needed to alter something to stop the persecution upon them. Simply put, they were being persecuted. God knows. He says, I'm watching. I will avenge, be faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. You know, sometimes in this society in which we live, we're so results-oriented. And we're so... It's speed-oriented, that things have to happen, they have to happen quickly, and if, the result, if I'm not getting the results I want, then I have to tweak, I have to change, I have to alter. Why is it that this church is seeing something happen that that church isn't? And so you go to the conference where the guy who's got the successful church says, here's my six-step six method. We're reminded that it doesn't always work that way, that Just because you're not seeing some sort of material gain or success does not mean that the Lord is not working. Now, if you're not seeing spiritual gain or success, there's something wrong. Because in whatsoever state we are, we'll see in just a moment, there's contentment and there's capacity to grow. But if you or your family or our church are not seeing something that some other church is seeing... It's not necessarily because we're doing something wrong. Maybe it's just that the Lord has opened a door in one place and He hasn't opened a door in another. Maybe it just is that the Lord has something different for one church than another. Of the seven churches that we read about in Revelation, only one of them is said to have the open door. Only one of them is is said to have this victory and praise God for that. That the, 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 the slide of the churches is too far away at this point those churches are in a general similar proximity to one another who's to say that Philadelphia's open door would not extend to all of those other churches areas and beyond but God had chosen something for that church for that time with those people with that culture they were a church with an open door God forbid that the other churches should resent them for that. God forbid that, that Philadelphia should look at Smyrna and say, well, Smyrna, what are you doing wrong? Because you're being persecuted. God forbid we should look at the persecuted church in another country and say, what are they doing wrong? God forbid that the persecuted church should look at us and say, well, they're not being persecuted, so they must be doing something wrong. God forbid that we should take on a mindset that if we don't, if we don't, uh, if we're not being absolutely loathed by the world, there's something wrong because the Bible says, marvel not if the world hates you. Where are we at spiritually? Are we being faithful? Are we doing the works? Are we bearing the marks? Is there spiritual strength? Is there vitality? Is there growth? Open and closed doors, that's God's business. And no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be able to shove open a door that God's closed. And no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be able to shove close the door that God's opened. That's God's business. What is our business? Our business is to be about the Lord's business, whatever it is. If he asks us to suffer, let's suffer with gladness and endurance and patience. If he opens a door, let's run through that door with our full might. All of our strength. Open and close doors. They're the Lord's. Paul saw all of them in his life. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, lack. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The key is stay with Christ. The doors are opening, praise God. The doors are closing, praise God. Let's stick to Christ. Let's be faithful. Whether we're abounding or suffering need, whether we're full or we're hungry. And so we're reminded in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Skipping to verse 31. What shall we say then of these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Skipping to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril of the sword? Skipping to verse 37. nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So the question is, are we remaining in the love of Christ? Are we holding fast to what we have that no man take our crown? The crown of life promised to Smyrna if they're faithful unto death. The crown of life promised to Philadelphia as they're faithful with the open door. Both of them promised a crown as they hold fast to what they have. What do we have at Legacy Baptist Church? What don't we have Are we so busy focused on what we don't have that we're missing what we do have? Are we taking what we do have and being faithful with it? Are we waiting for the open doors? Are we praying for the open doors? Where Christ leads, he provides, he protects, he defends. Second, about safekeeping and grace, we're reminded in this passage of the promises to those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. We've seen in every letter these promises to the overcomers, but it's all the more me- emphasized in our passage this morning because of this contrast between those who keep the word of Christ's patience and then them keeping the things which they have and the distinction between those two. Those who receive the gospel we see within this passage are kept from the judgment of the Lord. We're reminded by this of our safekeeping and grace that as salvation is not a product of our worth, it's not a product of our righteousness, it's not a product of our efforts, so then we can have confidence that the promises of God unto believers are not earned, but they are received in hopeful faith as it relates to the, the uh, saving work of God. The moment we accept Christ as our Savior, we're set on a path that keeps us from the hour of temptation that shall come upon all the world. We're set on a path to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're set on a path that ends in the glorious resurrection of, of our bodies until life everlasting. And if you sit there this morning and you're trusting in anything other than, than the power of Christ for your salvation then you're standing on an improper foundation. It's Christ's worth alone. It's Christ's sacrifice alone. It's Christ's righteousness alone. If you have seen, if, if you have attempted through some effort of your own to get to heaven, you will fall short. Some righteousness of your own, the things that you're doing, the things that you're not doing, you will fall short. Those are not the conditions by which a man enters into the kingdom of God. He that believeth is not condemned, John three eighteen, but he that believeth not is condemned already because uh, uh, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We go back to Romans chapter eight for a moment. And we read in Romans chapter eight verses twenty nine and thirty. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. The Bible says that when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, he becomes predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. that those who are predestinated are called. They are the elect. They are the elect because they are predestinated. They are predestinated because they've accepted Christ as their Savior. And those that are elect will be justified. And those that are justified will be sanctified. This is safekeeping and grace. This is the promise that once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior... You are now a part of the plan. You are now in the elect. You will. You are, the moment you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, predestinated to become conformed to the image of His Son. You are called, justified, sanctified. These things will happen to you because you've accepted Christ as your Savior. All, it's all a part of the package of being safe, kept in grace as we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Third and final point, about our opportunity for rewards. To those who are safe, kept in grace, Jesus calls them to hold that fast which they have, that no man would take their crown. We're reminded by this that while our safekeeping in grace is entirely dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what we do with that grace is entirely up to us. We've gone several times in several contexts over the past several months to 1 Corinthians 3 to talk about wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. I'm going to emphasize a couple of other verses this morning that remind us to hold fast. One of the greatest benefits of prophecy is that knowing what is to come, it encourages us to do the work now. Every week thus far within these churches, we've been focusing on what to do now. What about us now? Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. "'Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain.'" Every believer is, if I may put it this way, a part of a race by virtue of their faith in Christ. And the temptation on the part of the believers to think that because we have entered the race that we've arrived, missions accomplished, it's kind of like one of those walks for cures and whatnot where everybody wins and as long as you're, you're in the race, you've already won because you've given the money to charity. And that's fine. That's, that's not really a race anymore. It's a walk, right? A race, there's a winner. And there can only be one of those. And if you want to win, you don't eat potato chips on your couch that morning and then get up and say, I think I'm gonna go run a race, and then stand at the line and have a pop or two, and then go run your race and win. I mean, unless you're like running against little kids or something. If you want to win the race. You prepare your body, you change your diet, you practice, you maintain a discipline so that your body is in peak form so that you can compete effectively. Paul lived under a constant pressure, not a guilt, not an obligation, not a shame, but he felt a constant pressure to strive for the rewards of heaven. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. I'm not running as if I'm just, I'm I'm not just going for a jog. You know, you go for a jog, you start somewhere, you end somewhere. You want to walk for a little bit, you walk for a little bit. Paul says, I'm not doing that. He says, there's a finish line and I see the finish line and I'm going to run with that in mind. He says, I'm going to fight not as one that's beating the air. I'm not just practicing. I'm not just hitting the dummy. I've got a opponent and my opponent is there and it's either him or it's me. He says, I'm in this to win. I'm in this for rewards. And so I am going to keep myself under subjection so that I can win the race. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to position myself for victory. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. There is a finish line. And though we don't know what all that finish line entails, it's there. Can you see it? Can you see it in front of you? Do you see the day of rewards approaching? Are you headed towards rewards? Are you at the are you at the front of that pile? At that pack? Or are you kind of in the middle or are you just lagging behind walking? Are you preparing? Are you living out your day, day in, day out, keeping under your body, keeping it under subjection, lest by any means, when you have preached to others, knowing what you know, you should be a castaway. You should be one that doesn't receive the rewards that you know about and that I know about. We know that they're there. We've talked about them. You know about them. You've told others about them. You've thought about them. Are you actually living in a manner that will earn any? Philadelphia was a church which was given an open door. An open door, presumably, to reach the synagogue of Satan. An open door, perhaps, to reach the world. This door is not the inheritance of every church. But we can know this. The blessing of God rests upon all those individually, familially, and in a church setting who keep the word of Christ's patience, who are believers, and who hold fast to the faithfulness and obedience to the word of God, that no man would take our crown. Let us do the same this morning. Let us search ourselves. Let us keep the gospel. Let us hold fast to faithfulness and obedience. Let us keep the things of this world in their proper place. Let us strive for the rewards of righteousness that when our Savior does appear, we will not simply know that we have been saved from the hour of temptation which will come upon all the world to try them that are upon the earth, but also that we have stood in such a way that no man, no thing has taken our crown.